0: Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members and we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to Episode 152 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Hope you are well. I recently received some good news as it relates to my cancer situation. As you know, if you've been following me, found myself back on chemo yet again early this year going through a full fury and a vast end for my stage for colorectal cancer. And was fortunate to have clean scan end of March. The next one's coming up mid-June. But in consulting with my oncologist, uh, because we had that clean scan, we made the decision to transition to what we call, and maybe some of you are familiar with, maintenance chemo. So basically what that meant for me is we're taking out uh, one of the core components of full fury which is Arena T can which causes most of the this uncomfortable side effects and I'm strictly going on Avastin and 5FU through the pump. So typically where I sit in the infusion center for about two and a half hours for my infusion, yeah I didn't know what to expect with this change. I was a little naive and sat down a couple of weeks ago and we were done in 10 minutes because my only drip now is Avastin. And so 10-minute drip uh, hook me up to the pump and come back in 46 hours. My biggest question was, and I know so many of you go through this, is a couple days after we get chemo is the side effects really start to kick in, and that's been the case for me. I always get my infusions on alternate Wednesdays every other week and then about Friday afternoon right around when the pump comes off is when I start to decline in terms of how I'm feeling and I'm usually wiped out and feeling pretty bad for the weekend. So I wasn't sure what to expect with just the Avastin and the pump and I was pleasantly surprised when Saturday rolled around and usually I'm in the fetal position just sleeping all day. That I felt about ninety percent the same as before chemo. So uh, I'm thinking, wow, as long as these results continue to be good, uh, I can I can do this. I can, you know, be hooked up to a pump for a couple of days and really not feel any major side effects. So grateful, Linda and I and. You know, all my family are so grateful for this bit of good news, and we just hope that it continues, and we'll find out when the next scan rolls around here in a couple of weeks. For this episode, we're going to revisit a previous conversation that I had with Dr. Sage Bolte. Dr. Bolti is with the Inova Cancer Center in Virginia. She's a licensed clinical social worker and certified sex therapist, and that is what we talked about. Sexual health while dealing with cancer. This episode came out about three years ago. It was immensely popular for, I think, obvious reasons. It's an important topic and added to the list of topics, unfortunately, that people aren't typically comfortable talking about. So I feel like uh, just being able to listen into this conversation and listen to Dr. Bolte's advice uh, resonates with a lot of people. Not long after this interview, I had the opportunity to see her speak. At a colorectal cancer alliance conference. And you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody in the audience was so dialed into her message and what she had to say. No topic was off limits, as is the case in this episode. I hope you and those who you love get the chance to listen if you missed it the first time and get some helpful guidance from my conversation with Dr. Sage Bolte. Sage, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. How are you today?
1: I'm well. Thank you, Lee. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, it means so much to me. We've been doing this show, as I said, before we went on the air a few years, and the topic of sex is not one that we've covered yet. So this is a first, and it's an important one, and all the more reason why I appreciate this. And as I think about our our audience of colon patient colon cancer patients survivors and caregivers mm-hmm. a common theme that comes up is you know this is the embarrassing disease and mm-hmm. now we're layering on top of that the quote embarrassing topic on top of the embarrassing mm-hmm. disease
1: <laughs> yeah i hear that for for me nothing is really embarrassing and everything's on the table so um I, you know i think whatever the disease is, that this is an important quality of life topic. So I'm, I'm glad to be here to be talking about it.
0: No question. And, you know, I, I wish these things weren't embarrassing because it, it is important to talk about. So where I wanted to go first was from my perspective, you've got a lot of dynamics going on here. Mm-hmm. You've got patient slash survivor, you've got caregivers, mm-hmm. and then you've got the whole gender piece. Yeah. Two. So sure. where, where I wanted to go first is what are the biggest issues facing patients like myself? And I want to start f- with men first.
1: Okay. So, you know, some of this has to do with staging of disease, of course, and the impact That's of true. disease on sexual function, where the tumors are, any resection that was required and whether there was nerve damage or if somebody needed an, uh, an ostomy bag, or an ileostomy, that certainly can impact both body image, but also sometimes sexual functioning because of, of nerves. So for men specifically, I think it's always important to talk first about body image and how a man perceives oneself, not just physically, but also emotionally, sexually, the role they play with their sexual partner or themselves sexually and a colorectal cancer diagnosis can impact that um, for men just as it can women. So for men, if there has been resection, um, that there certainly could be nerve damage that could impact sexual function and meaning both um, erectile function, being able to get a firm erection for penetration or for masturbation, which, again, you don't need a firm erection in order to have sexual pleasure. But I think there is this myth for men that the only kind of erection is a firm erection. And so being able to talk honestly about that with him and his partner or his physician about ways to improve that erection, that would be one impact that the cancer treatments or surgery can have. When we think about chemotherapy on a man's body, besides the fatigue effects and just feeling maybe not a hundred percent the energy impact. You know, when we talk in general about sex, so I'm gonna talk differentiate between intercourse or sex with self versus uh, sexual play know, intimacy, kissing, touching, being close to someone physically. And yeah, I think cancer treatments can impact all of those. But for the sake of our conversation, I'm going to specifically talk about the mechanics of sex right now.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: So for for a man's body, chemotherapy, certainly from the side effects like fatigue. And things like dry mouth or mouth sores, even that, sometimes we don't think about the negative impact it can have on wanting to be sexually intimate with someone if you're conscientious about your mouth or it doesn't feel comfortable. If you have radiation and you're concerned about bowel incontinence or just discomfort that can impact fear or anxiety related to sexual intimacy... Or, again, urgency and and not knowing whether intercourse or masturbation is going to stimulate that bowel urgency. Some people have fears just about that. And and then communicating. I think men are getting better and better as we go. If I'm going to gender stereotype, men are getting better about communicating. Yeah, Yeah, yay! <laughs> I would not say it's the innate strength of many men. So communicating needs is not always something that men, especially around sex, feel as comfortable with. So if there have been sexual changes or arousal changes, let's say that um, the male's skin is, is uncomfortable when it's touched or it doesn't like being kissed in a certain way or they're uncomfortable or embarrassed about the erection or the lack of erection or the lowered libido, that they may not be communicating that to their partner or their team. And so communication is probably the biggest step in improving any of those side effects for men. So, you know, again, the most common side effects would be erectile disorder or a a decrease in erectile firmness, libido or lower interest. And that might be an emotional reaction because they just don't feel great or they're scared about life or they have anxiety or depression. There also might be, um, lower libido, um, from hormones. That's not common for men, um, related to colon cancer, but you know, people have bodies and testosterone can lower for a number of reasons. So it could be um, an implication. And then, you know, libido, of course, is always lowered because of fatigue and just not feeling great in one's body.
0: Sure. The different challenges that, that women would may, may face.
1: Sure. So I think women as well, body image issues, probably more pronounced than men, but Not always related to the changes in body, feeling in their body, if they've had weight gain or weight loss because of um, the treatments or steroids or other things needed to manage some of the side effects. Libido change is probably the thing I hear from most women related to um, the chemotherapy effects and just The many other things they're managing, and then the natural aging process for women. Libido is a natural change as women approach menopause or go through menopause, which is the common age of women getting diagnosed with colon and rectal cancer. So I think it complicates or confounds that as well, the interest in sex. Um, When I say libido, the interest in sex. And then the body's response to sex as well. If they're caught up in feeling negative about their body or anxious about the way their body feels, they may not have much interest in sex because their body doesn't respond in the same way related to, again, anxiety. And whether that's fears of of incontinence or fear of pain, fear of discomfort. For women, it isn't uncommon to have pelvic pain with, with penetration. So although they might still have pleasure with clitoral stimulation, if they've had pelvic radiation or they've had a resection of, of any kind, they may have a narrowing of the pelvic floor or the vaginal wall and they may have vaginal stenosis, which means there's a narrowing of the vaginal canal and that can create painful intercourse. It also can just be painful with a gynecological exam. So a lot of women are given dilators after treatment, which are devices that look like um, different shaped candlesticks or different size candlesticks. They're used to put inside the vagina to help with vaginal reconditioning and strengthening. But a lot of women don't think to use them, even though their doctor may have recommended them either a, because they're not having intercourse to begin with. So they don't think to use them or B, they're not interested in having intercourse, and so they wait until they're interested to use them. And then you're looking at much more complication and in, in kind of uh, essentially the, there's a lot more physical therapy required if you wait than when you're prescribed.
0: So a proactive approach is is, rec- is recommended?
1: Definitely. A proactive approach is always recommended. And, and clearing it with your doctor, there are some physicians... For when going through treatment for rectal cancer, for example, that while you're getting radiation, they may not want you using dilator therapy until you're complete with radiation just because they don't want to aggravate anything or risk tearing or bleeding or, or any of that. But, but if the physician approves it, the more proactive, the better for sure.
0: So the, the, the common thing that you mentioned between genders was libido. Yeah. Uh, re- were suggestions on, on how to overcome that challenge?
1: So I think one of the most important things to remember is our brain is our most important sex organ. And our skin is the largest sex organ. And colorectal cancer really impacts neither of those, if you will. I mean, it impacts some of it, but only a small portion of the skin. And so libido often gets a bad rap because of our media today where they show 22-year-olds who look at another 22-year-old and is sexually drawn immediately with that gaze across the, the, you know, the, the walkway. And libido is really about the desire to want to be sexually intimate, the desire to want to want to have sex, and not necessarily the body saying, oh, my gosh, I'm horny or I'm turned on or I want to have sex. Because if we're looking to our body to give cues for it to be turned on or aroused, given that your body often feels fatigued or maybe some nausea or that you feel like your body's rejected you or gone against you in some ways, your body may not give you those same cues. And that, that's true as we age in general. So, again, confounding factors. But if our brain says, I want to want this, I want to desire to be sexually intimate, I want to be sexually intimate, our brain then can take steps to help improve our libido. So if I want to be sexually intimate with my partner, I may need to think about it throughout the day, fantasize about what it might be like, be intentional about the communication I give my partner, like leave a sticky note telling him or her that I'm feeling amorous today, or I can't wait to spend time with you, or be intentional about music, I mean, some of it's going back to the basics, right, of setting the stage. So um, if uh, a warm bath or a walk on the beach or a walk outside or just sitting outside watching the sunset is something that intrigues you um, uh, both sexually and, and intimately, then you put those things in place to help your brain desire that sexual intimacy. The other reality is if we wait for our body to say, oh, I'm aroused or, oh, I'm horny, We're going to wait a long time um, because life happens and kids walk in rooms and all kinds of things interrupt some of those patterns. So when we can set a set a time aside to be sexually intimate, even if it's not about intercourse, but just rather, you know, on Thursday nights, we're going to go upstairs early and we're going to close the door and by 10 o'clock or nine o'clock or if you're on treatment, seven o'clock that you go upstairs and you're just intentional about being intimate, again, and removing the the pressure of sex, but just being intimate intimate and using sensual touch, your body, you may notice as the touch starts, may have an arousal response. But if you don't offer it some of those steps or some of the foreplay, it probably won't. You're just going to keep waiting for that libido to magically appear.
0: Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. Is a common, I don't want to use the word mistake, but uh, another word is not coming to mind. Do we sometimes set the bar too high in expectations (laughs) that it's got to be, you know, intercourse and orgasm as opposed to just saying, you know, let's just be close and see what happens? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think, especially in American society, again, the way we portray sex is, um, oftentimes unrealistic. Um, you know, it's not clean and simple. It's messy. And it's, there are things that cause us to laugh and, um, Sometimes it's emotional, and sometimes it's quick, and sometimes it's long, and sometimes it's it doesn't meet the goals that we have measurable. So, even starting the conversation with your partner about sexual intimacy is important to me, and it and it may look different on different days. For some women, they may not be able, to, or for some men, they may not be able to have anal penetration, and so their sexual practices may need to change. But their sexual pleasure doesn't necessarily need to change. So maybe, again, laying naked and holding one another is um, a a form of sexual intimacy that's pleasurable. Um, And maybe middles is pleasurable or breast play or kissing or just enjoying each other's skin Um, or reading erotica together and enjoying the fantasy in your brains together, Um, watching a romantic comedy. There are so many ways to integrate intimacy and sexual intimacy that's sensual and sexual, that if we give ourselves permission to to sometimes redefine it as our as our body needs it to. So if I'm really fatigued, maybe intercourse, I don't have the energy for it, but I can absolutely snuggle naked with my partner or we can kiss for a while and hold each other. That it's again communicating and, and sharing opportunities to be which also lies A lot of, and I hear this more from women than I do from men, women that if they start kissing their partner, then suddenly the partner's going to expect intercourse. And they don't necessarily want intercourse because it's painful or um, they're too tired, but they still want sexual intimacy. And so, again, the communication between partners around, I I have the energy for intercourse, but I'd love to be sexually intimate, is really important.
0: How does the picture change when you're looking at it Sage, from the caregiver's perspective. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, we talk a lot about how cancer, if you're in a partnership, it often impacts the partner just as much, just in different ways. So, you know, neither of you asked for this cancer to enter into your world and change the way that you manage your relationship. And so, giving the partner permission to have feelings about that is also important, right? So the partner can be angry that cancers come into their world as well and sad that cancer has changed the sex life that they used to have or eager to look at how to explore a new way of being sexually intimate. And oftentimes, I'm gonna get gender specific here, I hear from male partners, whether they're partnered with other men or whether they're partnered with women, that there is a fear of, appearing selfish if they try to initiate sexual pleasure because sure their partner they don't want to make it feel like that matters that much to them that they're okay but that they miss it and they would like to do it but then they're afraid to initiate out of the fear of being perceived as selfish and so the the caregivers often delicately dance on do I bring it up do I not bring it up should I just worry about satisfying myself I don't want them to feel rejected but I don't know how to initiate without making them feel bad and then On the flip side, the survivor or the patient often then has the feeling like, why isn't he touching me anymore? Or why isn't she touching me anymore? Why doesn't she initiate like she used to? Or he doesn't initiate like he used to. And the the internalization of that is they must not find me attractive or they must not want me anymore. And on the caregiver side, 99.9% of the time when I see couples, it is not at all that. It's, oh my gosh, I didn't want to be perceived as selfish or pushy or I didn't want to hurt you. Or the last time I touched you, you smacked my hand away. So I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to keep touching you. Yeah. The caregiver, you know, there's, there's a ton of support for People in treatment or out of treatment that are survivors or patients, there's not as much support for caregivers. And so their life is normal and they don't necessarily get recognized in the midst of this, that this impacts them too. So they may internally have some feelings, distress, depression, anxiety, worry, fear that also impact their libido. And so it's not uncommon for a caregiver's libido to be affected as well. But again, not because they're not attracted to their partner, but because we've just added a lot more stress and distress to their lives.
0: And it sounds like it goes back to the word you used earlier and that's communication, which whether you have, you're dealing with cancer or not, isn't that always where it comes back to? (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so funny how we struggle with it because so many things would be improved and so much easier if we just talked. So yes, very important. Very important.
0: Mm -hmm. So as you're probably aware there's been, unfortunately, an alarming increase in the rates of diagnosis in young people. Young
1: people, partic- mm-hmm. particularly
0: in rectal cancer. Yeah. Talk to me. Talk to us about being single in the dating scene and how mm-hmm. this dynamic plays a part of it.
1: Yeah. i I. I think there is no way to sugarcoat that or make it. So- sound having cancer and being single and going back into the dating world, either going through treatment or after it sucks. Um, and, and, and I have no other way to say that. But I think there are a lot of real great success stories that I hear all the time about people who are young, have been diagnosed, and have found really powerful, wonderful relationships after their cancer diagnosis. So I wanna encourage those who are single and considering dating that it is not kind of a death sentence to dating or relationships. It can be scary and it is awkward to bring it up and it can suck, but it also, there's a lot of people out there that will take you just as you are. So I think when when thinking about the dating world, the first thing I say to people is, you have to know yourself before you put yourself out there. So understand your cancer, understand the implications of your cancer, understand what it means to your sexual body, understand what it means to your fertility, because with cancer being as prevalent as it is, and on the media as much as it is, young adults are well, are way more informed about cancer than they used to be 15 years ago. So they're, healthy, quote unquote, counterparts or peers may actually be well informed on cancer and have a lot of questions and may be as bold to say, are you going to die or can you have kids or what does this mean that you have a bag? Right. So knowing your own story and understanding what your body, how it responds and what it needs is going to be really important going into a dating relationship so that you're prepared to both answer questions so that they are put at ease when you answer the questions. Um, Because the more confident you sound, the more confident they're going to be and relaxed about the diagnosis or the history of the diagnosis. Um, Also, just physically getting to know your body again, because it's not uncommon for our erogenous zones to sometimes be impacted by treatments. So if you had pelvic radiation, maybe you have skin sensitivity or irritation um, that impacts when you're touched. Maybe it's uncomfortable or it's highly sensitive. And before you get into a sexual relationship with someone, you should know that so that you can guide them appropriately rather than fumbling through it and jumping or getting hurt and creating pain for yourself or the person that you're sexually intimate with. You can guide them through that. Things like You know, I know that after I eat, I'm going to need to be by a bathroom within, you know, 20 minutes. Those kinds of things, as long as you educate them and it's not a surprise so that you know that you've been able to navigate life as inconvenient as it might be. That you're comfortable them, comfortable and confident. And the more comfortable and confident you are in your body and the way it feels and the way you understand your sexual body after cancer, you can then direct and guide them to knowing your sexual body. The more comfort, com- confident and comfortable they're going to be in navigating your sexual body. And, and again, you know, that goes even you know, a bag knowing some of the steps to just integrate that um, into life, that it's part of you and it's part of your story. And there are lots of ways to cover up bags and make them not in the way of sexual play. And so learning some techniques on how to do that, by way, I disclose that I've had cancer, my, my, my kind of standard advice is do it before you have strong feelings for the person. So when we're young adults, typically by date four, we're pretty sure we really like this person and want date five, six, seven, and eight. And so before date five, maybe would be a good time and, and disclosing it in, in a way that's authentic and true to you. If wearing a, I'm a survivor t-shirt is authentic and true to you, then you wear that t-shirt. If integrating it into your life story is, is authentic and true to you, then that's the way you do it. I think what's really important to remember, even though it may feel like sometimes, especially with colon cancer that the cancer sometimes even after the cancer is done treating continues to run your life it doesn't define you it's a part of your story it's a part of you but it does not define you
0: great advice as we get to the near the near the end of this conversation, I know you're busy and I really appreciate you taking the time. One major piece of advice that you would offer folks who start to think about sex, perhaps being newly diagnosed, if you were to make one overall suggestion, what would that be, Sage? Oh
1: gosh, one suggestion. I think give yourself permission to be sexual first of all. That you are a human in a human body that happens to have cancer, and that does not remove the fact that you're a sexual being. So giving yourself permission to redefine what that might look throughout the course of your treatment. If you have advanced disease and you're going to be living with this for a while, that may mean that you need to re- redefine it every time you get a new treatment that um, has new side effects. And learning and and learning how to navigate that and manage that for your own body and your sexual body is important, and for those who complete treatment, that You have the right to sexual intimacy. You have the right to be a sexual person and find if you have questions initially when you're newly diagnosed about how this might impact your sexual health or your sex now or in the future, talk to a trusted colleague or a healthcare professional. So whether that's the social worker or the nurse, whoever you feel safest with, they may not have the answers for you immediately, but they will get them. And then if, if there are ongoing problems or issues, you know, there are people like me throughout the country who are oncology social workers and also sex certified sex therapists. You can also find a sex therapist on ASEC, American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists, or an oncology social worker on the Association of Oncology Social Work website. So both of those resources would be good tools for you to have.
0: Okay. Could you give us the first website again?
1: ASECT is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. It's A-A-S-E-C-T dot org.
0: Great. Sage, I can't thank you enough. Really appreciate you taking welcome. the time to do this. And any place, any other online resources that you would recommend people go to for additional information or guidance?
1: Sure. So the NCI actually has some really great resources on... Um, sexual health and sexual recovery, as well as fertility and reproductive um, issues. Um, So I would definitely check out NCIs, and you can type in the little search box sexuality, and it will um, give you a bunch of information related to that. Colon Cancer Alliance is beefing up their information uh, related to sexual health as well. And then the American Cancer Society has a PDF on their website that's called Sexuality and the Man with Cancer and His Partner or Sexuality and the woman with cancer and her partner—they are—they are pretty heteronormative. So if you're in multiple relationships or you're in a same-sex relationship, there's still information you can apply. Just I always like preparing for people for that. There's also for women. I think there is a book that's uh, not for cancer survivors necessarily, but a great get-to-know-your-body book called "Sex Matters for Women" uh, by Sally Foley, Sally Cope, and Dennis Sagru, and that's a great resource. And then there are two books written by Ann Katz, who's a nurse in Canada. That's Man Cancer Sex and Woman Cancer Sex. So both of those are also great, great tools.
0: Great. Well, I appreciate your, your help with those resources. Thank you again. Appreciate you taking the time. Be well. Thanks, Lee. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that Traditionally, I take a break somewhere in the middle of the show to share with you the various events that the Colon Cancer Coalition is promoting around the country. Obviously, with the situation as it is right now and many of us trying to adhere to social distancing, They've been unable to uh, obviously host their live events, particularly their Get Your Rear and Gear Run walk events, things of that nature. However, you can still support them because they've transitioned several of these events to quote-unquote virtual events, really an easy way for you to support the Colon Cancer Coalition from home. And it's important to me to to share this message with you because I know so many nonprofits currently are really struggling for support with the current situation, and they've been a wonderful and longtime supporter of the We Have Cancer podcast. So if you're looking for ways to support the Colon Cancer Coalition, please visit their website at coloncancercoalition.com forward slash events. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. We have cancer as a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.